Uncharted 3. It is for many people a standout title in this franchise. Perhaps not their favorite, for many people Uncharted 2 holds that title, but it still is one that people look on very fondly. Now this could of course be just nostalgic bias. I for one really enjoy Uncharted 4. It's probably my favorite of the franchise. Don't worry, we'll be critiquing that one in the very near future as well. But I'm very upfront and honest that that was my first game in this franchise that I actually played. And then I went back and played the others after the fact. And as a result, I probably have some nostalgia bias to 4 that I didn't have with 1, 2, and 3. You know, they say you never forget your first, and I think that that's true in many cases, especially video games. In all seriousness though, people usually find the first game that they played in a franchise to be one of their favorites, if not their favorite. And in the case of Uncharted 3, this was a game that really took it up a notch above and beyond what all of the other titles in the franchise had done up to that point in terms of marketing, which is perhaps the most important piece here. Subway, we're winners eat. Sure, Uncharted 1 did fairly well. Uncharted 2 was reviewed very highly and did very well after its release. But Uncharted 3 was the first game in this franchise where they poured tens of millions of dollars into the marketing campaigns. Magazine covers, TV commercials, online ads that were on every single gaming related website. You name it, they probably did it to promote this game. And as a result of those campaigns, the game sold very, very well and even in spite of that was reviewed fairly well perhaps not as well as it could have been if certain steps were taken that we'll discuss over the course of this video but still it was fairly successful and perhaps the most notable element of this game's entire creation is that it was the first time that naughty dog really made a concerted effort to shift away from the kitschy campy supernatural stories that they had in uncharted 1 and 2 and focus instead on something more grounded in reality although still kind of outlandish where you had zombie Nazis in Uncharted 1, here you're going to be focused on a chemical hallucinogenic agent that people attributed to the power of a djinn. And that is in effect the supernatural element, but with a naturalistic explanation. It also is the first time that we really see Naughty Dog and their writers make a concerted effort to tell stories that are much more believable and that aren't so focused on making out the main characters to be campy action heroes that are lovable but do things that are objectively insane but rather instead try and use them as characters within a story that's a little bit more meaningful and also believable however the most important and in my opinion interesting thing about uncharted 3 isn't the gameplay design it isn't the story it's not the action sequences that we get to play through it's the weird infighting that you can feel throughout the course of the entire game. Now, I don't mean between the characters that you'll interact with throughout the course of the story. What I mean is that it really seems as though developers and writers at Naughty Dog at this time disagreed very strongly 
as to where this game and franchise should go. On the one hand, you had a group of writers, developers, and even the game's director, Amy Hennig, that believed that Uncharted should retain its lighthearted feeling, shouldn't get too serious, could have and perhaps should have supernatural villains and elements within it, and they shouldn't burden themselves with the weight of having a realistic and grounded story. That's something that takes extra time and money and effort to write for, it's a headache, and it's not as fun so you shouldn't bother with it. On the other side of the studio, you had other writers, developers, and in this case, the studio executives, not the game directors, that thought that Uncharted should become more grounded and should focus more on realistic stories, believable characters, things that aren't so drowned in supernatural explanations that don't really make any sense, perhaps less zombies. And these two groups fought pretty hard and you can feel this tension all throughout the story it feels like it's starting to break apart at the seams at certain points and then at other points it fully breaks apart and there's plot holes all over it because you can tell they had a supernatural explanation for this weird thing that happens they decided to cut that supernatural explanation so then there's just no explanation at all except you have something that's supernatural happening that isn't explained which basically is just a supernatural element. So it, it just sucks. <laughs> there really isn't another way to put it other than that Uncharted 3 is a game rife with growing pains related to a huge transition in studio mentality and tactics. Naughty Dog was really good at making these fun, lighthearted adventure games with Uncharted 1 and 2, and even 3 to a certain extent, but in the middle of three, perhaps as they were getting further and further into the ideation process and development process of The Last of Us, which would release just a couple of years later, they started to realize that a more grounded tone is something that they were more in favor of moving into the next generation of consoles, which was just a couple of years away. Seriously, the infighting and the two dueling design philosophies at play in this game all at one time make for a really fascinating case study on game development and narrative creation. However, it results in a game that is rife with plot holes, is pretty inconsistent in terms of quality, is glitchy even to this day in the remastered collection, and all told isn't particularly fun. <laughs> but don't worry, I'm not gonna just say this stuff and then not back it up. So to prove all of my points, we're gonna go through the entire game start to finish, walk you through everything that happens, and point out all of the little eccentricities that come up over the course of this game's runtime. And of course, there are spoilers that will come up for Uncharted 1 and 2, so if you're weary of those, go watch my videos on those games first then come back to this one. It'll still be here waiting for you. Also, before we get into it, huge thank you to all of my patrons. If you want to support this content, get more videos like this and get them a week before everybody else, all you have to do is head over to Patreon, throw a single dollar into the pot. You'll support these videos and you'll get to see them early. Who doesn't want that? And a very special thank you to INRG for his incredibly generous support. And be sure to check out my new startup, RhapsodyStream.com. Get unlimited access to copyright-free, headache-free, cost-free music for all of your live streams and YouTube videos. All you have to do is head to RhapsodyStream.com and get started. But with that, 
Let's get into it. So the game opens up with Nathan and Sully entering an English bar where they meet a man by the name of Talbot. I could say Talbot, Talbot, Talby. I don't know. I'm just going to call him Talbot because everybody calls him that, but I understand there might be a better way of pronouncing it. So get wrecked. Nate and Sully begin a discussion with Talbot to trade Sir Francis Drake's ring for a suitcase full of cash. It's immediately clear that Talbot is working on behalf of somebody else. At this point, you don't know who he is. He could be a lawyer, he could be a bodyguard, or just an associate. It's not really clear. Now you'll notice immediately that this game has a totally different tone to it compared to Uncharted 2. In fact, both 1 and 2 started with bombastic sequences that were as campy as they were unrealistic. This contributed to the fun, lighthearted tone, but held back the franchise from serious dialogue and concepts. But Uncharted 3 marks the first time that Naughty Dog really tried to tell a story that, for one, made sense, and secondly, was gritty enough to stand as its own PG-13 adventure drama. In effect, they were trying to transition from Johnny English to James Bond. Thematically, they're the same, I guess, but they are very, very different. And clearly one is way better. Johnny English. Like I said in the intro, the problem is that this shift in tone isn't felt throughout the whole game. There will be huge swaths of this title that feel directly akin to Uncharted 2 and others that have shadows of The Last of Us, but none of it is truly congruent. But for now, I like the setting. The bar is well decorated, it seems gritty and grounded. I, I like this opening, I'll be honest. That is until Nate and Sully figure out that the money is fake. They call BS and try to leave, but are immediately attacked by Talbot's men. And this is the first of many, many massive fist fights that the game is going to throw at you. Seriously, I don't know what it is about Uncharted 3 and Naughty Dog's insistent on these fist fights. They're not fun, they're clunky, and they lack any and all sort of depth. The only inputs for the player are attack with square and parry with triangle while moving around. That's it. It'd be one thing if these sequences were part of some larger QuickTime event, requiring occasional inputs in order to complete a small scripted sequence, but this is it. This is the scripted sequence. There are some cool finishers that can play out if you press triangle during an attack near certain objects, but that's really as flashy as these fights get. It's like Naughty Dog got these contextual animations working and said, you know what, that's great. Let's turn that into a mini game that the players have to do 20 times throughout the game, even though it's not fun. It's just bad to me. I know this game is a decade old and it's easy to nitpick things that have aged poorly in old games, but still. I don't think this was fun then, and it's not fun now. This also stands out to me as an example of a mechanic that shouldn't have been blown up to the scale it was. It's like the Batmobile in Arkham Knight, fun in small amounts and a chore in large doses. It really is like these fist fights, except that these are not fun either in small doses or large doses, so they just suck. After beating the crap out of a larger brute and being slammed into a urinal himself, Nate and Sully escape the bar. Or I guess it's in England, so it's a pub, I guess. However, immediately after exiting, they're surrounded by a bunch of armed henchmen. This is when we meet Talbot's boss, Marlo. She pulls up in a limo and takes the ring that you were supposedly trading for. And then one of Talbot's henchmen, a guy named Cutter, proceeds to shoot Nate and Sully 
point blank. The game then immediately jumps into a flashback to 20 years earlier, where we see a young, early teens Nathan Drake looking at a Francis Drake exhibit within some museum. We also see a young Sully open up a briefcase that has this same ring that was just stolen by Marlowe 20 years later in it. This sequence then plays out basically as a parkour tutorial. The free climbing is actually really simplistic here, and all you have to do is pickpocket the ring for this case out of Sully's wallet. It's really unremarkable, except that Nate breaks into the museum, is able to steal the ring, and is chased off by a bunch of Marlowe's henchmen, only to be saved at the last second by Sully, who takes him in basically as a uh, second-in-command, an apprentice of sorts. And already we have a backstory to a relationship that we've seen play out over the course of the last two games. Previously, we had never seen where these people had come from. We didn't know where Nate and Sully met. We didn't know why they cared about each other or trusted each other so greatly. It was just out there. But now we're seeing an actual explanation being presented, yet another reflection of Naughty Dog trying to tell a more engaging and more effortful story compared to what they did previously. Even if the climbing sequence that it's set around isn't that interesting, I'm still very appreciative that this segment is within the story because it adds to the characters, it builds their relationship, it's really good. We then jump back to the present right after Nate and Sully are shot. Now of course it will come as a surprise to absolutely nobody who's ever seen any action title ever, they weren't actually shot. You see Cutter is a double agent for some reason and he decided that he was going to help nathan and sully by shooting them with squibs basically fake bullets or fake blanks that then set off a squib within their shirts to make it look like they're bleeding out okay <laughs> now as a tactic this is a little bizarre because of course nate and sully couldn't have known necessarily that they would be jumped the second that they left the bar after beating the crap out of all of talbot's men but even if they did know that they likely would have known that Marlowe wasn't one to just murder them in cold blood in the middle of a street which is why they don't respond positively to cutter when he shoots them so him shooting them is actually more suspicious than if they just like tied them up and took them off it, it's it just is overly dramatic because like naughty dog wanted to have this fake out where it looked as though they had killed nate and sully in the first minutes of the game and then they didn't <laughs> We'll see this many times throughout this story where it seems as though the writers or developers, whoever came up with this, had the initial thought of like, wouldn't it be cool if we opened the game and then immediately Nate and Sully are shot, but it turns out they were shot by a double agent and they're not actually dead. And that's as far as it goes. Like nobody thinks, well, why would they need to be shot by a double agent? Wouldn't that look weird to the double agent? or to the, the boss of the double agent, like, why did you just murder these people? Because it was shocking and cool. Like, that's really as far as it goes. This is the first of many of these moments where you'll see a kitschy, classic action story element presented and then just not explored or explained or thought through really at all. It's just there because somebody said that would be cool. And that's it. 
Right after all of this is revealed, Chloe shows up and you realize that she's working with Cutter, Sully, and Nate. It's not overly important, but basically they're trying to steal some artifact that Marlowe has that will work with this ring for some purpose that we don't know yet. They figure out that Marlowe's base is nearby, so they decide that they're going to break in. Now, while we're talking about Marlowe, we should get a few basic elements and things out into the air because I think it's important to understand, once again, how much effort was put into Marlowe as a villain. You see, Marlowe is a member of a secret organization that's never really developed beyond the mere mention of it. This is actually really unfortunate because I really like Marlowe as an antagonist. I think she's kind of creepy. She seems magnanimous and has a lot of gravitas. She draws my attention in whenever she's on screen and I think she could have had a lot more. Perhaps it's just her accent and posh way of carrying herself, but I find her motivations intriguing beyond simply seeking out treasures and chemical weapons for the fun of it. But this is never developed. Marlowe's motivation is effectively that she's part of an organization that is supposed to do this one thing and she's doing it. This one thing, by the way, is finding that ring that Nathan stole when he was 14 years old and that they're just now taking back offering fake money for it, even though they presumably have real money. Uh, but even that isn't super clear. It's possible that the money that was offered in that opening sequence was actually legitimate and Sully and Nate never intended to actually sell the ring or present it. They just wanted to draw Marlowe out into the open so that they could pursue her secret artifact that will do something we don't know yet. Furthermore, Marlo acts as though it's a very personal pursuit for her, but we never are given a reason to believe that it is personal for her. In addition, this organization to which she claims membership is only briefly described, even though they apparently have access to two incredibly potent hallucinogenic drugs. And as we'll discuss later, potentially even magic. They might have a wizard on their side. It's actually something that's brought up, but we'll get there. And of course, in what will surprise nobody, they have seemingly endless amounts of money, being able to hire countless mercenaries, even after hundreds and thousands of them are murdered by Nate over the course of the game. Don't worry, we're not going to be discussing ludonarrative dissonance too much in this video. We discussed it a lot in the Uncharted 2 and Uncharted 1 videos. I won't beat the horse dead once again in this video. All I will say is that Nate will continue to kill hundreds and thousands of people without any real consideration at all, and it's just something you have to accept as part of this franchise. Like, there's just no getting around it. Now, the fact that Marlowe and her organization are so interesting, you would think would present the writers an interesting opportunity to expand this backstory a little bit more, but they really just don't. They just tell you it's a big, scary organization that's been around for four centuries, and that's it. It's not brought up again in any of the other games with Uncharted 4 or The Lost Legacy. It's not mentioned at all. Yet another example of something that Naughty Dog didn't think through really at all in this game. They just thought it sounded cool to have a big scary organization that's been around for four centuries and they said cool let's just do that. <laughs> and then it, it never got developed any further than that. And as proof positive you can describe every element of the game's villains in effectively just a few words, very simple sentences, and it does a very accurate job of explaining 
everything that's going on, which is once again, proof positive of how simplistic the writing is. Uncharted 3 has a villain who's a member of a secret organization that has endless funds and resources. She also has a sidekick, an assistant named Talbot, who's incredibly powerful and capable of many of the same maneuvers and actions that the player is. Regardless, after breaking into Marlo's facility, you eventually push in, finding this artifact that you've been looking for. Turns out that this thing works together with Nathan Drake's ring that she's also been trying to steal, and it's used to translate the text within a book that Marlo also has. So they weren't just looking for one artifact, they were looking for two, and thankfully they were stored in the exact same place right next to each other. After translating the book, not much is learned. Other than that, Sir Francis Drake had been hired for some sort of secret project by Queen Elizabeth I way back when, and that... It had something to do with the Atlantis of the Sands. Nate and the squad find out that they need two secret items in order to progress and find the Atlantis of the Sands for some reason, so they split up. One group heading to Syria and the other group heading to France, Nate being in the French group. So Nate and Sully head together to this big abandoned mansion castle thing in the middle of a jungle that's also in the middle of France. There's not much communicated to the player as to what they should expect to find here other than that it's an old abandoned castle palace thing and that it has something to do with your pursuits. The item you're seeking is likely here, at least according to some of the research that Nate has done. I know I sound like a broken record, but really not much thought was put into why the player needs to go here in this particular castle why the item would be here it seems much more as though they decided they wanted to have an old castle with a bunch of caves underneath it and that that was going to be a level and then they found some way of getting the player there that was kind of arbitrary it's honestly not that grave of an offense it's something developers and writers and films do all of the time you start with a set piece and you find a way to get the viewer audience member player whoever it is there i'm willing to forgive it i think it's just a necessary evil in the entertainment industry and even then i'm not sure if it's necessarily an evil itself i think it's just a way that writers work so i'm not burdened by it. While Nate and Sully explore the castle, eventually they come across what seems to be an old fireplace. And while they push through it, Nate falls and it lands in a cave system that's underneath the castle, which thankfully is actually where they need to be. One thing to note is that there's a bunch of spider webs everywhere and spiders crawling around the walls. It may seem as though this is simply an effect of caves because there are spiders in caves but this will actually be important later because these little buggers are going to come up again the player eventually finds the opening of a well you climb up fight some enemies and land in the courtyard of the castle and in what is the first in my opinion true shooting arena of uncharted 3 the player pushes through multiple waves of enemies within this courtyard once again i could complain ad nauseum about these shooting galleries and how lackluster the combat is but I've done that plenty in Uncharted 1 and 2 in those videos, so I'm not going to beat the horse dead again, just like the other topics with Ludo Narrative Dissonance. I'm, I'm going to leave it here. The combat isn't great. It gets worse because of the level design later on, but we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. For now, all I will say is that it still is kind of sucky, but that's it. 
Now, after reuniting with Sully, the two come across this body. This is one of those instances that just isn't really explained. The body seems to have had its life force sucked out of it. So how could his body be in this horrible state, seemingly very decomposed at the very least, if they just got here? And this is such a standout, bizarre moment for Nate and Sully that Nate asks, Yeah, but what could have happened to him? I had no idea, but I sure as hell don't like it. But yeah, this is never mentioned again. Now remember those spiders? Those things do attack somebody in just a few minutes. However, we have no way of knowing if this is the result of what they do. Plus, those spiders are in the underground chambers. They don't like light. That's how you repel them. So how on earth are they in this upper floor, well-lit room killing this guy? I, I don't know if it's supposed to be the spiders that did this to him or if it's supposed to be some sort of weird Talbot superpower. We'll get to it later, but it's it's weird. I have another theory as to what happened to him, but I won't discuss it just yet because it'll spoil something for later. So as of right now, just remember this guy and remember that this is never mentioned again and there's no explanation given as to how he died and had his life force sucked out of him. There's then a few basic puzzle sequences, such as walking on different platforms that have certain symbols on them, making sure that you don't fall into the pit below. And after that, Nate and Sully continued to push their way deeper in the catacombs, pushing a table out of the way to reveal a trapdoor underneath, and then eventually landing in a cavernous system that requires the use of a torch to light your path. Now, I've had a fair number of friends that have complained about this type of thing. They don't like the cavernous sections because they all look samey and they're just not that interesting. I actually don't have an issue with it, especially because this gives the game the opportunity to use some interesting puzzles to occupy the player's time. I'm okay with it, as long as it's not the entirety of the game or a large chunk of it, but all told, I, I think these sections are fine. You then have a fairly interesting puzzle where you have to match different symbols on this, I don't know what to call it, letter board? Maybe. I don't know if these qualify as letters, but you have to match them up on the right symbols based on things that you find throughout the course of the room. It's not too difficult, but it does require at least moderate attention and a little bit of thought, which in these games is pretty much all you can ask for. His sarcophagus is still sealed and inside they find the amulet which is the object that they came to find. However, this object doesn't tell them everything they need to know. They have to go and find the other half of the amulet in Syria, which is where Cutter and Chloe have been. You then exit the tomb, immediately greeted by Talbot and some of his henchmen. They take the amulet from you, but immediately upon doing so, there's a swarm of spiders that fills the room. And it's right here that these spiders attack this one guy that just took the amulet. He nicely hands off the amulet before being devoured by the spiders or something. I really don't know how he dies. He just kind of lays down after the spiders start crawling on him. So maybe they sucked the soul out of him like the guy earlier. Maybe they didn't and just bit him and poisoned him to death. I, I really don't know. Talbot and his one surviving henchman immediately exit, leaving Nate and Sully to fend for themselves. And so as the spiders begin to swarm, they find an opening that they can climb out of. However, I will say Sully drops the torch here in order to climb up even though the light seems to be the only thing that protects him and Nate from the spiders. I guess expecting that they'll just figure it out as they climb their way through the darkness. Totally unnecessary, 
could have just tossed the torch up the nine feet or whatever it is onto the ledge before climbing up. It, it's just like really dumb. <laughs> and I try, there's no way to pick up the torch because that would of course make sense. And the reason that you can't be holding the torch when you get to the upper level is because the game designers wanted to have this sequence where you're running through the caverns and tunnels away from the spiders as they chase you. But if you had the torch with you, which repels the spiders, they would have no sequence here. It would just be you walking down a tunnel and there wouldn't be a cool tunnel sequence. So again, it's just they started with the idea and even though how they get there doesn't make any sense at all, especially with the characters and the actions that they're performing, they decided, eh, it doesn't matter. This sequence will be cool. So get over yourself. Regardless, after escaping the caves, we have a little bit of platforming and then once again, more shooting galleries. Now, almost immediately upon combat beginning, the house catches a blaze and the whole palace, mansion, castle, house thing starts to go up in flames. Walls start collapsing, ceilings start collapsing. And even in spite of this, the building is still filled with Talbot's henchmen. None of them have the self-awareness or self-preservation drive to leave <laughs> and just exit the building and wait for Nathan and Sully, shoot them once they get out of the building, if they do, which is a long shot. But instead, they still post up and like get behind cover to shoot Nathan and Sully to provide more engagement as you escape the fire. Like, it's just kind of dumb. I mean, I get it. You can't have really smart or really grounded enemies all the time. It just doesn't work. You need some sort of engagement. You could have Nathan and Sully just escape the building and that's it but it's more engaging to be escaping the burning building while you're being shot at and while you have to shoot at enemies and fight your way out. I get it. It's, it's just, it's still dumb. <laughs> Regardless, Nathan and Sully continue to push their way outside of the palace, eventually finding themselves on the roof after a few basic parkour systems. And this is the first large set piece that I found really memorable in this game, specifically that the roof starts to collapse as the tower collapses as well, coming down on the roof right behind you. It's a really cool sequence visually. It runs really well. And considering that this game launched on the PS3, it's technically very impressive. But after all of this, Nathan and Sully escape the burning inferno and head off to Syria to save Cutter and Chloe, who they've not been able to contact and who they are very worried about, especially considering that they were followed to this French castle by Talbot's men which means that likely Chloe and Cutter were also followed, putting their lives in extreme danger. And considering that they can't contact them, it's reason for concern. In fact, the second you get to this location in Syria, Nathan tells Sully that he still can't get a hold of either one of them. To the player, to Sully, to Nate, this probably immediately should trigger the thought, they're probably dead, or at the very least they're being held and they've been captured. Like, it's one of the two. How on earth would they not be able to contact them, especially in between the time from France traveling all the way to Syria? Like, that's that's not a quick trip. At least, you know, a couple days of not communicating at all. Like, I, I would immediately assume something was horrifically wrong, but 
the explanation is pretty dumb, so just buckle up. Now, the suspense doesn't last long. You pretty much walk up to this old site in Syria, go through the front door, and immediately are greeted by Chloe. And right around the corner is Cutter. A cutscene begins where all four are talking. Nate obviously is kind of confused and also frustrated because they've been trying to reach them with no word whatsoever. And Cutter explains why they haven't been able to reach them. Oh, right, I need to top up my minutes. You're using a prepaid phone? Mate, those contracts are a complete ripoff. <laughs> what? Mine's broken. Again? Look, just forget all that. Yeah, yeah, so Cutter is a cheapskate and Chloe's phone is just broken. For some reason like this really just doesn't make any sense to me at all the whole reason that you have the characters at the point where they can't be contacted is because you want to build suspense with the viewer the player nate solely believing as though something could be really wrong this instills a hustle a concern an emotion but within 30 seconds they immediately cut it off nope there's chloe and cutter so nothing's wrong why did we do that then Ah, because contracts are a scam, mate. It's like the whole thing was just for this one joke where Cutter could say that cell phone contracts are a complete ripoff. And that's it. And then they're like, well, but Chloe, is she going to have the same excuse for her phone not working? That eh, no, we'll just say that she, uh, we'll just say that she like has a phone, like her phone's broken or something. We'll just say that. Like, seriously, that's all this is. They set up all of that for this one stupid joke. You can't make this up. The other problem with this is that it's effectively like crying wolf on the part of the writers. They're saying these characters are in a dangerous situation. We need to be concerned. You need to be worried and you need to have hustle. And then they immediately go back on it. Ah, just kidding. Got you. It's a joke. So funny. And that's it. They do this so many times throughout the course of this franchise that especially by the time we hit Uncharted 4, but also by the time we reach the later stages of Uncharted 3, whenever there's a serious threat or a serious concern relating to one of the characters, the player is not going to believe it's an actual threat. So the stakes are rock bottom. And it's because of crap like this, whenever there is reason for concern, the writers effectively mock the player and think it's funny that they just wasted that time for a stupid joke about cell phone contracts. Like, I can't even begin to explain or fathom or put into words just how dumb this is. I don't know who thought this would be a good idea, but once again, it's that conflicting design philosophy that we'll see, and we've already seen, but we'll continue to see it throughout the course of the rest of this video, because one group of people think that these kitschy, funny little moments were like, yeah, those cell phone contracts are a ripoff, is where the game should be focused. And then the other group are like, oh no, the characters are in danger that we can use that to create some more desperation in the player and maybe have some levels where there's extra tension involved and we could up the stakes a lot. And they're like, no, 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 we're not going to do that. Like they, their phones are just dead. It's fine. And that's it. It's infuriating. <laughs> now, while we're here, why don't we also touch on Cutter real quick? Cutter as a character is relatively interesting. He's funny. He's 
uh, got claustrophobia. He's somebody that actually can be a nerd in certain instances. And in general, he's kind of funny. For me, I immediately assumed that this likable character had been set up and put into the story purely for the purpose of being killed off. And I was relatively excited for this when I first played it. I was like, okay, the whole franchise, this whole franchise long has been avoiding killing main characters. They're just, they pussy out at the last second. They're about to kill him. They foreshadow it 15 times in Uncharted 2. They foreshadow it in Uncharted 1. In 4, they'll do it a ton. In Lost Legacy, they do it a ton. And they never pull the trigger, pun intended, to actually make something happen. I thought maybe this is it. Maybe they're gonna get rid of Cutter. And it's not that I just wanna see characters die. I just wanna see consequences for stupid actions or consequences to reckless action that proves there are actual stakes and that these characters are actually in danger. But uh, don't get your hopes up either because once again, Naughty Dog is going to, let's just say, pull the, the rug out from Undercutter in the stupidest way possible to avoid killing him. So just wait and see. The group pushes their way into this old castle, eventually climbing up a tower. There's an explosion once some of the henchmen show up that blows you outside the tower. You swing around the outside. You climb back in. There's a shooting gallery because of course there is. And after you fight your way through, you reach the top of the other tower that you manage to get to. Use the map and figure out where you have to go using the constellations in the sky. I mean, I'll just say it seems kind of stupid that you would need to climb this specific tower to look at a constellation and then look underneath it in order to figure out where you're going to go, especially because where you have to go is lit up in bright blue lights and is clearly a massive entrance to something important because there are large statues on either side of it. It can't be that simple, can it? It really can be that simple. And with their newfound destination, the crew begins to run that way, immediately ambushed by people with RPGs who you quickly take out with a sniper rifle that you can find nearby. Now, I don't love the combat in this game, but I will say the sniper rifles are way better than anything else that the game gives you because it's a one shot, you can get the whole combat sequence done quickly and move on. It's unfortunate that the game continues to rely on the same trope that it will use even for Uncharted 4 and The Lost Legacy, which is specifically that they will have many different guns available to the player, but you will run out of ammo quick enough that you'll have to swap to a different one so that you're constantly juggling and swapping different weapons around based on what has ammo. I understand why they do it. I get that it forces mobility within combat and makes the player move around, not just shooting from one specific section of the arena, but actually moving around to pick up different ammunition and weapons as they become available. I get it. I just think it's aged really poorly, and I would like to see an Uncharted game with some Last of Us mechanics, for instance, where you have a couple weapons that you can upgrade and use over the long term, and then you find ammunition to support those individual weapons, as opposed to having to swap the whole weapon out just to get new ammo. Anyway, the group continues to push on with Nate and Cutter eventually getting separated from Sully and Chloe. It's not particularly important as to why, because they are almost immediately reunited. Like literally, I think it was three minutes later within the gameplay that I was reunited. So I'm not sure if this was supposed to lead to some more difficult puzzle or more elaborate sequence where the two groups were separated, or perhaps it's purely set up here so that Nate and Cutter can share some funny, quirky dialogue. I really don't know, but 
they're not separated for very long. Once the group is reunited, Talbot shows back up out of absolutely nowhere, is able to shoot Cutter with a dart of some sort that seems to control his mind because Talbot's able to request his gun and the journal and Cutter, acting like a dazed sheep, hands it all over. Furthermore, Talbot tells Cutter that he shouldn't trust Nathan Drake. Now, it seems as though this substance that was on the dart that Cutter got shot with is some sort of mind control agent. He'll believe whatever he's told while he's under the influence of it, and he'll do whatever he's asked to do whenever he's under the influence of it. But weirdly, he'll only do what Talbot asks him to do when he's under the influence of this, I guess, compound is what you'd say. Now, the only reason Talbot was able to do this is because Cutter was separated from the group for just a moment. Basically, the other three were around a corner. He hadn't crossed the corner yet when he had been shot with this dart. However, right after Cutter hands Talbot the journal, Nathan comes back around the corner to check on Cutter, where he sees Talbot right there. Talbot walks slowly away, back around a corner. I'm not joking into a solid brick wall and disappears. Yet another thing that just is never explained at all. I'm not joking. Like, you would think of all of the things to explain, it would be a character in a cutscene, which is how you know it's canonical, seemingly disappearing into thin air. Like, if I wrote a story and a character seemed capable of teleportation and I didn't explain it, I would consider that to be a major failing on my part. However, here it's just never explained at all. It's sort of implied that he might be some sort of teleporting wizard or that he might just be some sort of black ops operative that's able to walk through brick walls. Who knows? But this is the issue is that like the story isn't finished. This is never explained at all. I have a theory as to what they were going to try and do to explain this away that we'll touch on in just a little bit after Talbot does even more crazy stuff. But until we get there, just remember these two simple things. One, the man whose life was sucked out of his body in the upper story of that chateau. And two, that Talbot seemingly can control minds using a very simple substance and that he can apparently teleport in and out of brick walls. So remember that. Now without the journal, it's gonna be a lot harder for the group to push inside of the castle, but they eventually find their way in. It's a tight and confined space, and as the group pushes through, Cutter, who has already expressed that he is very claustrophobic, begins to freak out, still under the effect of whatever hallucinogenic or mind-altering substance he was injected with. And upon pushing through, Cutter immediately starts freaking out and attacking Nate. And again, this is why I think that this substance isn't simply a mind control drug where somebody will just do whatever they're told because they tell him to stop fighting Nate many times and he doesn't. So for some reason, this substance makes it so Cutter can have his mind controlled, but only by Talbot for some reason. But anyway, Cutter and Nate fight it out for about 90 seconds, eventually with Cutter giving up and letting go after almost killing Nate. With the mind control substance seemingly wearing off, Cutter expresses confusion as to what just happened. I don't blame him. I'd be pretty confused too. 
but the group moves past it pretty quickly. You push into a simple puzzle room where you have to ignite some braziers which project lights onto a globe. And then we have another section with the spiders where you have to use these torches to light your path, pushing the spiders off of certain platforms before jumping onto them. To me, this serves as further evidence that the spiders didn't suck the soul out of that guy because if they really were some sort of hyper-powerful or supernatural spider that could do that to somebody, it's very unlikely that the exact same spiders would show up in Syria, whereas the other ones were in France, still like completely alive after 400 years. You could say maybe it was that uh, Sir Francis Drake brought these spiders with him and kind of spread them all throughout the world and they just posted up. But the fact that they're still here after 400 years is a bit of a stretch. Or perhaps it's as simple as the team spent all of this time and effort developing this system for spiders being afraid of the light and attacking the player when they were in the darkness that they said, eh, we don't really want to use that for just one level. Let's use it for two. So they just copy and pasted it into a new level and new sequence a little bit later in the game. That's probably more likely the case, but still I can try and explain it away in a more clever way. At least I'm putting more effort into explaining these things than the developers did. Ugh. The other kind of sucky thing about this level is that because you have to use these torches to light the braziers, they have to infinitely replenish the torches. Otherwise, it's possible that you could miss your throw. It doesn't ignite and then you're just soft locked and you're screwed. You can't progress unless you reload to a previous save. I actually think I would probably prefer that over just the infinite torches. Maybe there's a series of like three or four around each brazier. So you effectively have four attempts at getting the torch throws right. And if you screw it up, then the light slowly fades and then the spiders come up, eat you, and it reloads to the previous save when the torches were still there. I think something like that would at least be grounded, but I understand that maybe for some people they don't care that much and it just isn't important. Once you've done this, a spiral staircase drops down and you're able to climb up into the tomb which contains the sarcophagus of yet another knight who possesses the other half of the medallion. Thankfully, Nathan sketched all of these pieces down in his notebook, so it doesn't actually matter that Talbot has the other half of the medallion now because they have the note containing the same information. Once they compare the two, they figure out exactly where they need to go in Yemen. However, in one of the most weirdly staged and stilted moments, probably of this entire game, Cutter interjects randomly to say that he's going to carry this half of the medallion out of the castle for some reason. Cutter, who just had a mind control substance used on him and he proved so susceptible to it that the bad guy was able to steal two different items from him in the span of about 10 seconds. That guy is the one that wants to carry this half of the medallion for some reason, and nobody questions him on it at all. Nobody goes, eh, Cutter, buddy, you just had a mind control substance used on you. I'll take it until you're feeling better. Chloe could have said it, Nate could have said, screw you, man, I'm going to carry it. Sully could have said it, but no, everybody's just like, okay, take it. Sure, I don't care. It's pretty dumb, especially considering what's about to happen. The crew climbs out of the catacombs and Talbot presents himself with 
more henchmen. The two groups are separated by a large chasm after a bridge collapsed many, many years ago, and the two groups are at a standoff, both aiming their weapons at each other. However, almost immediately upon seeing Talbot, Cutter begins kind of freaking out, and then he turns and points the gun at Nathan. Talbot, very pleased that his mind control drug seems to still be working, tells the others in the group to drop their weapons. And with Nathan looking down the barrel of a gun, they all do so. Talbot, very pleased with himself, now commands Cutter to shoot Nathan. However, then Cutter turns and actually shoots Talbot. So he was faking being under the influence of some sort of mind control drug uh, in order to get his whole team to drop their weapons so that he could just shoot the bad guy and then the other henchmen would start to unload on them. I guess if he wanted to shoot Talbot, he could have just done it while he was aimed at him before and while his friends still had their guns in their hands, but instead he gets all of his friends to throw away their weapons and then shoots the guy and then all of the bullets start coming in. It just doesn't... It doesn't make a lot of sense other than to be like, oh, cool, Cutter, like, faked that he was still under the mind control substance so that he could take down the bad guy with his guard down. Wow. <laughs> Seriously, this whole moment was purely crafted, not because it makes sense for Cutter to do this. In fact, it's objectively a really dumb thing to do. Disarm your friends and then piss off the bad guys by shooting their leader. Doesn't make any sense at all. It was purely done to disarm the player so that right after this sequence happens, the player has to run through a very specific route, triggering a cutscene where the player character, Nate, doesn't have a weapon in order to offer any sort of support to Cutter, who's going to be caught further behind. Again, the writers decided where they wanted this chapter to end, and then they fit everything around that pretty poorly. They needed Cutter to have the medallion on him, even though it objectively doesn't make sense for him to carry it when other people in the group are able to. And they also needed the player to be completely unarmed at the end of this sequence so that they couldn't interfere reasonably with anything else that was going on. And so that also Nathan in the middle of this cutscene would have no way of retaliating or fighting back the bad guys which were pushing up and would force Cutter to do something that's not great. What is that something? Well, the group runs to the top of a tower, leaps to a platform just below, but with Nathan landing on the platform, part of it collapses, being too far for Cutter to jump. This leaves Cutter standing on the tower all by himself, Talbot reappearing seemingly fine. Yet again, Talbot. Not only can he teleport and use mind control substances, but he also apparently can survive direct gunshot wounds to the chest, which granted is not anything new to this series. Sully is very familiar with that, but still we're getting kind of silly. Now the bullet definitely hit him, but there's no evidence of it hitting him at all. His suit isn't even moderately scuffed. And I thought maybe this was just because, you know what, it's a PS3 game. Maybe they just didn't do model swaps when a character got shot. But the opening to this game shows Nathan and Sully getting shot and immediately blood seeps through their shirts. So you know they got shot. In this case, Talbot gets shot and is fine 
to the point where there's not even a hole in his suit, even though he was definitely hit by that bullet. So we're left with two possibilities. Either he has some sort of supernatural ability to survive gunshots and immediately repair not just himself, but also his clothes of gunshot wounds, or the bullet didn't hit him. And if the bullet didn't hit him, then he, for some reason, mimed this whole spin fall thing that he did for some reason. Like both options suck and don't make any sense at all. But that's what we're left with. Regardless, Cutter loses the medallion because of course he did. And of course he was the one carrying it. And this had to happen because the writers needed Marlowe to have some reason or way of knowing where to go next. And as a cherry on top of the stupid pie, do you think they just kill Cutter? Even though that makes sense? No, no. They uh, bring out gas cans that Marlowe has had her henchmen bring up to the top of this tower preemptively okay they brought these up they pour it out onto the wood slats on top of the tower and then she lights a match i guess to kill him because the assumption would be that the fire will either engulf him lighting him on fire and killing him or that he'll be forced to leap to his death you know bullets work pretty well too but i guess this you know this is like the most passive aggressive way to kill somebody ever a, it's ridiculous. I thought maybe this was because Marlowe has some sort of repulsion towards killing people or maybe like religiously or based on her beliefs and her organization, she can't directly kill somebody. So she has to basically push them into situations where they would kill themselves, if that makes sense. So instead of just shooting Cutter and killing him that way, she decided to light this platform on fire, which will force him to leap to his death, which would in effect kill him, but it would be suicide. So she's not actually to blame morally. So she can get it like around that moral dilemma that way. But, I mean, it's still killing people. <laughs> and at the very least, that could be a fairly interesting narrative character element to explore, especially at the end of the game where you could have Marlowe in a situation where her only way towards victory is to kill Nathan Drake and, and turn the player. But she can't do that according to her dogma and moral code. So instead, she finds some sort of obscure way of trying to force the player into a situation where they would kill themselves. That, that way, you know, she's not morally responsible. That would be at least somewhat interesting. But if that is what's going on, it's never said or explored or spoken at all. It's just not. Instead, Marlowe and Talbot decide to light this platform on fire, turning around and leaving before they find out what Cutter actually does. So they don't see him jump off. They don't see him burn to death. They just light this fire and leave, which means that they don't see what he does next, which is that he leaps to the bottom, which clearly this is a height that should probably kill you. To be honest, I mean, this has to be 40, 50 feet. It, it's pretty high. But instead, he jumps off and just breaks his leg. A and that's it. Um, he's fine. <laughs> and the amazing thing is that Cutter isn't in the rest of the game. He's not. He's out after this. So they could have killed him off. 
as a result of his stupidity for taking the medallion and being the last one on the tower. But instead, they just don't. They break his leg and uh, you never see him again. It's mind blowing. Like, seriously, they basically killed him off because you don't see him again and he's out of the story. But they didn't have the balls to actually kill him off. So instead, they just break his leg and then he's out of commission. Like, what? <laughs> and to finish it out, you have one last major shooting gallery while you escort Cutter out and on to the bus. In the bus, the group reevaluates their options but decides they need to push on. However, Cutter is going to be down for the count and out of commission. We then transition to Yemen, where Nate and Soli have just landed, and you're immediately greeted by Elena. She happens to be here doing some sort of reporting for some story that she's doing, which is how she gets these press passes to allow Nate and Sully into the depths of the city. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I love Elena as a character. I think she's funny, witty, insightful, and she balances out some of the negative sides of Nate really, really well. Now, she doesn't do a whole lot in the course of this game's story. She is here for a little bit, but she definitely is not going to be a major character in the story, so don't get your hopes up. Nonetheless, Elena shows you the ropes and Nate and Elena share some dialogue with each other. The most important element of the conversation, though, is when Elena and Nate are talking about Sully. She specifically warns him that he would go to the ends of the earth for Nate, that he shouldn't ask him to. This is yet another occasion where Naughty Dog is very clearly signaling that Sully would kill himself, or at least put himself into extremely dangerous situations, in order to protect and serve Nathan. Nathan keeps asking him to do that, and eventually his luck will run out, and those decisions will catch up to him. That's what any reasonable person would read into these statements. However, it's not going to go anywhere. I mean, for real. They chickened out, killing off Cutter, who's not in the rest of the game at all, and who was only introduced... Like, to the player, maybe five, six hours of gameplay before this, there's very little mental or emotional attachment there, and they couldn't kill him off. So do you really think they're going to kill Sully off? No. Again, it's crying wolf. When you do this repeatedly, you end up in these really sucky situations where the writers are trying to raise the stakes, but you just don't buy into it because they've done that so many times and it just has never worked. Anyway, Elena, Sully, and Nate begin to explore a bazaar. She's got the press pass, which allows you to explore the depths of the city in more detail than you would have been able to explore otherwise. And you get to see some pretty interesting set pieces, such as this one when you're on top of this building and you get to overlook the city. It's really beautiful. And you can see just how far Naughty Dog has come with regards to their world building. The fact that they can build out this city so well, it looks like an actual city, even though the section that you're gonna be able to actually explore is very, very minimal. Very early on, you see Talbot, who's also exploring the city. Upon seeing Talbot, Nate immediately breaks off from Elena and Sully. Why he felt the need to do this, I don't know, but he does it, and immediately upon doing so, he's ambushed by Talbot, who proceeds to beat the crap out of him. However, in the process of this beating, Nate is actually able to swipe Cutter's notebook that Talbot had just stolen in the chapter before. We're then presented with another fist fighting section, one of the plethora that you have to go through over the course of this game. You're then reunited with Sully and Elena, but now you have Cutter's notebook, which I guess is why 
Nathan needed to be separated. There's then a brief discussion that Nate, Sully, and Elena have specifically with regards to Cutter, who Elena knows fairly well. And the funniest thing about this is that the writers are so aware of how ridiculous it is that Cutter just broke his leg and then bowed out of the story. Even Nathan expresses that this is pretty unlikely. Wait, what was? He's not dead. No, no. Him and Chloe. Wait, Chloe too? Yeah, but they both bowed out when Cutter broke his leg. He broke his leg? He's lucky he didn't break his damn neck or fall like that. He's fine. Just between that and burning to death, I think I would have jumped too. Again, I don't know why they would have these two conflicting things. Like, on the one hand, the characters think it's ridiculous that this thing just happened. And then on the other hand, the thing just happened. And it's almost like they're teasing and mocking each other at the same time. It really seems as though like the smaller level writers who are writing the individual dialogue for like this particular scene didn't like these big, broad decisions that were being made with regards to the story, likely by Amy Hennig, where it's like, we're going to kill off Cutter. He's going to jump and he's going to die after falling off the tower. She's like, no, no, no. He's just going to break his leg and then he'll he'll get off. We don't want to do that. It's going to be, be too much of a downer. We don't want to do that. So the writer's like, okay, I mean, you make the decisions, but we're going to tease it and make fun of it in a cutscene right after it happens. It's just really funny to me. So moving on. You eventually climb into yet another set of catacombs, and there's a small puzzle where you have to stand on a particular stone and match up the pillars based on the perspective that's reflected on the paper itself. It's a pretty quick and easy puzzle. It's not too difficult, but again, it requires just a little bit of attention and mental effort. So it, it's better than most in this franchise, especially in the games prior to this one. So. I think it's fine. After solving this puzzle, you're led into the depths of the chamber. It seems to be some sort of temple or at the very least highly ornate chamber of some sort. Maybe I missed the dialogue expressing what this would have been used for. I usually like it in these games when there's an actual like purpose for what this clue or building is. Like in Uncharted 4 with the clock tower. Clearly that has a purpose and there's a reason for it to still exist and be used in a certain capacity. It just also happens to double as a clue. It's like hiding a clue for a treasure hunt in plain sight. I love that kind of thing. But in this case, this seems to be an incredibly ornate structure of some sort that exists purely to offer, I guess, direction to travelers looking for the Atlantis of the Sands. But again, this is just one of those things that you accept in these types of stories and games and films. You just acknowledge it and then move on. I mean, again, the whole premise doesn't make a lot of sense. So to nitpick it because it doesn't make a lot of sense is just pedantic. So I'm not going to do that. We'll just move on. There's also a super cool optical illusion in here. These statues have these inverted heads, which means that you have an optical illusion whenever you walk forward. It looks as though their heads are turning and staring at you. It made me do like a, a double, hell, even a triple take when I saw this because I thought their heads were moving to look at me. It's just really cool. I don't know why this is super memorable to me and stood out, but I thought that this was awesome. But after getting more information, figuring out where you need to go next, yet more spiders show up. Yeah, two locations wasn't enough, so Naughty Dog needed to throw these things in three separate locations to get their full use out of them. Like, it'd be one thing if these were super cool and engaging and fun, uh, or at the very least, if you did something more interesting with them, like they did in the Playtale Innocence with the rats. But in this case, they just kind of suck 
and you have to just deal with it because they're going to use them time and time and time again. Probably the worst part is once the torches go out, you have to start shooting clumps of them to get them off the walls and prevent them from coming and attacking Sully, Nate, and Elena as they deal with this door that's jammed. I just really hate this. It's not clear where you're supposed to shoot. It's not really clear whether the shotgun shells are actually doing anything to the spiders. And in reality, there's nothing that you have to do here other than just buy time. And it seems as though this sequence is timed specifically around you running out of ammo. So you have to get through the shotgun shells as quickly as you can. And once you do that, you're able to move on to the next cutscene and get your way under the door. But that's it. You just have to use all your ammo and then it triggers the next sequence. It, it's just, it's stupid. <laughs> But either way, after you go under the door, you reach the upper level of the palace and find yourself in the center of a large bazaar. However, almost immediately upon entering the bazaar with Sully and Elena, Nate is shot with one of these same darts that hit Cutter. He tells Sully and Elena to run because he can feel himself freaking out. Now, granted, considering how hard they've been trying to kill Nate over the course of this game, you would think that if they had a clear enough shot where they were able to shoot him dead in the back of the neck with a dart, surely a bullet would have done just as well. But no, 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 it's a it's a dart which makes him just kind of freak out and trip a little bit and that's it. The player and Nate then share what can only be described as an insane acid trip with the perspective shifting as you run through these different alleyways. It's initially kind of cool, but it goes on for an uncomfortably long amount of time. It, it, like, I actually thought I was soft locked when we were playing this on stream because it just kept going on and on and on. Like, maybe I was actually doing something wrong. Maybe there actually is a glitch where it just keeps cycling and spinning and spinning. Maybe I took a wrong turn and just kept going in a circle. I don't know. But it lasted uncomfortably long. It's like, again, they had this one cool thing, which was this cool camera shift to make it look like you were high. And then they're like, well, we don't want to just use this for 15 seconds, even though that's really all that feels good. So instead, let's use it for like a solid two minute sequence, which isn't that fun. And it's just kind of confusing because we want to show it off and not let it go to waste. Anyway, eventually you find the light and break out of this delusion. Nate wakes up with Marlowe sitting at a table with him, looking at the ring that he's been carrying around his neck all this time. But at this point, it's not actually important that she has this ring as far as I can tell, because the only reason she needed it was for that decoder, which would have led them to the two locations that would have the medallion. So at this point, the ring is not actually important other than just being a memento. So it's kind of a dick move to take it, but I digress. I mean, she did kind of like force someone to jump off of a roof trying to kill them. So I guess dick moves are not unknown to her. So it's not really a surprise, but still. Here she flexes some of her power, showing off a lot of the research that she did on Nathan Drake. There's all sorts of background checks, pictures of Elena, pictures of his booking photos from when he was a kid to when he was an adult, and she rattles off a bunch of information about his childhood. And it's here that she rattles off a bunch of harming and frustrating information for Nathan, things that he's not proud about, things that he doesn't want the public to know, things that he doesn't want Elena to know, things that he himself wishes he could forget. This sequence will be important to bring up when we discuss Uncharted 4 as well, because if anybody could have found out about Nathan's 
brother Sam and what actually happened to him, it would have been Marlo when she was doing all of this research. Because after all, the only person that was able to figure it out in that game was Rafe, who also was only able to figure it out because he had a lot of money, which seemingly Marlo has as well. And if she's doing the same research on him that Rafe did, surely she'd be able to find out the same thing. But of course, this comes as no real surprise because of course, Sam was likely only written into Uncharted 4 to give Troy Baker some reason to work with the studio once more to buy him over until they started work on The Last of Us Part Two. So it's not really a surprise, but still. After a brief conversation, Nate breaks away and starts chasing Talbot down the same city streets that he was just tripping through. I actually think that this is when Naughty Dog is at their best and specifically Uncharted is at their best when they have these larger sequences built around basic gameplay mechanics such as the parkour systems and light combat. They also get to flex their creativity with regards to level design and show off the beautiful attention to detail that their artists are able to employ. This whole sequence is super fluid, it's beautiful, it's interesting, it feels as though you're actually running through a lived-in city. It's fantastic. After a long chase, eventually Nathan and Talbot end up by a fountain. Nathan knocks down Talbot, but is immediately knocked over the head with a 2x4, incapacitating him. We then cut to black and wake up in a pirate ship. I'm not joking. Not like a, you know, arg pirate ship but like a somalian i'm the captain now pirate ship that kind of thing look at me sure look at me sure i'm the captain now and uh this will lead into one of the most bizarre moments i've had in any game in a while you see this guy ramses he's the pirate captain and he's the one that kidnapped you apparently he was hired to kill you and take you out but he's actually keeping you alive because he wants you to help lead him to this atlantis of the seas because the fame and fortune will be cool now over the course of this conversation with the pirate captain he tells you that he's also kidnapped sully and that sully is likely going to die as a result of all of the torture they're inflicting on him once again setting up the idea that sully could die and we get once again another hand-to-hand -hand fist fighting sequence that goes on entirely too long again it could just be that i'm spoiled nowadays but these sequences just really have not aged well and after having a few discussions with people who played this game at launch it seems as though even back then those fans never actually thought that this was a good mechanic or one worthy of all of the time naughty dog gave it i mean especially when you compare the other hand-to-hand -hand combat systems that were in contemporary titles with similar budgets to this game such as the batman arkham games which were releasing around this time as well again i get it these games are not about the gameplay but still if you're going to put something in front of the player 15 times you should at least make it somewhat enjoyable but going back to the broader discussion of this sequence on these ships and what will eventually be a cruise ship this whole part of the game feels remarkably out of place it feels as though we were on track to make some real progress in the story the stakes were rising nate and elena were talking again and we were even going to get some drama surrounding the main villain but instead the player randomly gets kidnapped by pirates who want their cut of the treasure in exchange for not killing you after being paid by marlo to do just that you know as i'm saying this out loud i realize i'm just describing the plot of the mummy so it could just be that that's all uncharted 3 is but but still it, it's just 
it's stupid. I mean, I love Brendan Fraser just as much as the next guy, but that movie even felt kitschy in the 90s. I think it launched in 99. So for this game a decade later to be using the same exact plot line, like it's just not, it's not great. Also, by the way, if you want me to try a critique of a film, The Mummy would be a great one for us to tackle first. If you want to see that, let me know in the comment section below. We'd probably have to do it on Patreon just because of copyright stuff. I'd put it up on like Vimeo private access, and then you could get access to it through the Patreon page. I don't know. We'd have to figure it out. But if you'd be interested in me critiquing more movies, TV shows, that type of thing, let me know. More than anything, I'm just dying for an excuse to talk about like the mummy movies. I think that'd be super fun. Anyway, Nathan pushes his way through an abandoned shipwreck yard. I mean, it's just a bunch of abandoned ships. All of the levels are super, I, I don't know how to even describe it, disjointed. Of course, with all of these being ships, everything is floating and shifting. The flat planes are waving back and forth in the water. It's cool and I'm sure it was really difficult to get this system working and playable, but it's done in a way where it just makes everything far more clunky than I think they meant it. Because all these platforms are constantly shifting, cover never really works properly, especially because if you're in cover here and then the water comes and drops you, you're no longer in cover because the person can shoot down on top of you. And the cover system isn't robust enough to account for that. There's no going prone, there's no higher cover for you to use. You're just kind of screwed if this happens. Furthermore, they encourage you to use a lot of verticality, climbing up the masts and different levels of these different ships as the water lifts them and lowers them accordingly. And because this leads to platforms being mismatched, you can find yourself hanging on a ledge with another ledge directly adjacent, raising up, clipping into you, which in some cases can cause you to fall through the map. In other cases, it can cause you to just jump when you don't mean to jump. It basically breaks the free climbing system. But regardless, they use this opening sequence in this junkyard to push the player into a situation where they would eventually be found on a cruise ship. But regardless, they use this whole section in this abandoned shipyard to get you onto a couple of boats that were sailing towards a large abandoned cruise ship that is occupied by these pirates. These shooting arenas that you have to fight through are the same as any other, except now they're moving. So worse <laughs> but eventually you're able to climb onto the cruise ship and i actually think that this is visually and in terms of design probably one of the most interesting moments of the game but in terms of where it fits in uncharted 3 as a game it's really out of place for one most of the rest of the story of uncharted 3 takes place within villages markets and ruins. It can all start to feel incredibly samey. Even the content directly prior to this chapter felt very samey to what we had seen in Uncharted 2 and in the opening of Uncharted 3. This cruise ship, however, is pretty interesting visually. Now, it could be that I just think of it as a pretty cool sequence because it comes after what I think is the worst moment of probably the first three Uncharted games, which is the shipwreck yard specifically. It could have been a cool series of levels and shooting galleries with the water constantly changing the levels of engagement, making traversal interesting, allowing for some really novel set piece changes. However, instead we ended up with, like I said, one of the most poorly optimized levels in any Naughty Dog game ever. Even in the Nathan Drake remastered collection, it's glitchy, 
It comes off as poorly thought through, it feels incredibly repetitive, and has an over-reliance on the free climbing sections that are also broken thanks to those changing levels that I've just mentioned. Once Nathan actually reaches the cruise ship, it's a breath of fresh air. The structure is mostly intact, the floors are level, and there's far fewer glitches. Unfortunately, though, the game immediately throws you back into the same shooting arenas that they've been forcing down your throat for the last few hours. But thankfully, it doesn't take too long before you reach the bottom of the hold and you find who you think is Sully. Preparing for the worst, especially considering that Naughty Dog just braced the player and Nate repeatedly for the death of Sully, you take off the bag that's over this individual's head, expecting to see Sully's lifeless body. However, there's no head attached. It's not that he was beheaded, this this just isn't, this isn't a guy. Now just take a moment and think about this. The pirate captain said that he had Sully captured, which is how he was going to force Nate to help him. This makes sense after all. He's going to hold Sully's life against Nate so that Nate has to help him find the treasure. But it turns out that the captain never actually had Sully. He lied. And so we just ended up doing all of this for no reason at all. And I could see some gamers being peeved that they just went through the worst section of the game and possibly the worst series of levels that Naughty Dog has ever created for absolutely no reason. But I can forgive this. The idea that the pirate captain would lie to Nate makes sense to me. What I have trouble forgiving though, is that the captain comes out of nowhere just to make this series of shipyard levels possible. And at the end of this sequence, Nate is literally gonna wash up on a shore, go back to Elena, and then in the next sequence, you're gonna chase down Sully, which will take place the following morning. Seriously, this whole series of chapters could have just been cut and it literally would have changed nothing about the story, like at all. If the pirate captain showed up earlier in the story, or if he showed up later, still trying to get access to the treasure, I would be more forgiving. But the worst levels in this entire game are literally a waste of time for the player and Nate. Now, the other way you can forgive this type of thing is if the set piece is really cool. For instance, there's a ton of really cool set pieces in Uncharted 4 and The Lost Legacy that we'll discuss in those critiques in the coming weeks and months. The story justification for going to those set pieces is often really flimsy, if existent at all, but the set pieces are cool, so who cares? In this case, there's no impact on the story whatsoever. There is no reason for Nate to be at this shipyard, and there's no reason for this pirate to have any participation in this story. Furthermore, once you reach the bottom of the cruise ship's hold, you'll realize that Sully isn't actually there, and you need to evaluate a couple of things once this happens. For one, the pirate captain would have had to order his men to place a chair in the cargo hold, put clothes on it, stuffed with something to make it look like a person was slouched over in it and then prop up a paper bag on top of the Hawaiian shirt just so that it happens to look like something Sully would wear and pretend to tie up this imaginary person on that chair. The only reason that the pirate captain would do this would be to try and lure Nate to the cargo hold to get him close to that chair so that you could presumably get the jump on him if he happened to break free. And this only makes sense to do once Nate breaks out, which only leaves around 15 to 20 minutes 
for the pirate captain to decide that that's a good idea and order his men to do it instead of having those men stand guard or help try and take Nate down outside the cargo hold. And I know it's probably overkill to explain this in such great detail, but I want to highlight just how little sense this particular staging makes. There is no reason that the captain should have done this other than to get the jump on Nate. Why isn't the chair rigged with C4? We know that the pirates have it. They've used it just prior to this. Or why isn't there one of his men with a grenade launcher aimed at it, which again, we know that they have access to. That guy could have that rocket launcher aimed at Nate, ready to blow him to smithereens the second he got close to his stuffed friend. But instead, Nate gets close enough to take the head off, realize that Sully is not there, and then the pirate captain gives a long monologue in the traditional campy bad guy style only to have Nate throw a grenade that blows a hole in the ship. Oh, and shoot the captain. And break free while sinking the entire ship. I get it. You could just say that the pirates are idiots, and perhaps that's true. But at some point, the story stops making sense, and you're making excuses to push the characters in various directions to play out the story that you want them to tell. In this case, Amy Hennig and her team clearly wanted Nate to get into this cruise ship, cause it to sink, and have to escape it while it goes down. That was the entire basis for this quarter of the game. It doesn't matter that it makes no sense within the story itself. It doesn't matter that it's a total waste of time. It doesn't matter that it's a glitchy and unfun mess. And it doesn't matter that the characters specifically designed for this section of the game have to behave in a completely irrational way in order to achieve that outcome that they decided that they wanted. And this is the reason that Uncharted 4 will feel so different from Uncharted 3. After this game, and more notably after Amy Hennig had departed from Naughty Dog, these games will take a markedly different approach to the story outline and what they put the player through. They're not going to be a complete waste of the player's time just for sake of a set piece, except for in a couple very, very small instances. Whereas in Uncharted 3, these narrative detours can take up literally a quarter of the runtime of the title for no reason at all, as in this case. Seriously, nothing in the following games will even approach this level of carelessness. But with all of that said, the process of escaping the ship is actually pretty cool. It's a fun idea to literally take a level and flip it on its head. Climbing through these rooms where customers would have stayed when the ship was actually in operation, trying to escape, seeing the water levels rise through this massive skylight it's all really cool and it's certainly one of the most memorable parts of the game it just sucks that for 30 seconds of novelty they felt it was worth sacrificing a quarter of the game's runtime and of course i'm sure i don't have to tell you but if i were the game's developers i probably would have cut this whole sequence out it's cool and all, but to waste hours and hours of the player's time through countless bland and unfun levels just so that you can show off 30 seconds of cool visuals escaping a sinking ship, it's just unjustifiable in my mind. But regardless, Nate escapes the ship. He washes ashore in Yemen, having not drowned, thankfully and miraculously. He's able to find Elena somehow in this village that he washed up on and is soon informed that Sully was actually captured by Marlowe, but is actually part of her convoy on the way to the Atlantis of the Sands, not actually with the pirates. I mean, setting aside that it doesn't really make sense that Marlowe would take Sully and not Nate, because Nate seems to be the brains of the operation, or at the very least, it doesn't make sense why she wouldn't take both of them, why she would just 
hand off Nate to pirates to be killed, when again, she could have either killed Nate herself or just brought him along until they found the treasure and then killed him or given him to pirates. It's all very contrived. Nate and Elena share a pretty cute moment and exchange of dialogue where she allows him to rest while also comforting him. It's an innocent moment and it's one that's pretty sweet. They decide that the next morning they're going to try and become stowaways on this cargo plane, which will lead them to where Sully is being held. This whole sequence was of course spoiled in the trailers and the advertising before the game's launch, so I won't go into too much detail, but basically you get to ride on top of this Jeep that Elena is driving, climb onto the landing gear and become a stowaway on the plane as it takes off. It's actually a really cool sequence. It's done really, really well. It's visually engaging. It, it just in general looks really cool and is fun. So props. And this transition of climbing onto the landing gear, the camera lifting with the plane as it takes off, you see Elena slowly drift away into the distance. It's all really, really well done. Now climbing through the plane, Nate and a large brute get into a scruff. The brute opens up the loading dock door at the back of the plane, apparently to just throw Nate off and out of the plane. And once again, we get a fist fighting sequence because Naughty Dog loves these in this game. And after downing the brute, you actually unlatch one of the cargo crates, which flings off and knocks him out of the plane. However, this unlatches for some reason, all of the cargo in the plane, which in turn, kicks Nate out as well. Now, lagging behind a plane that in all likelihood would have crashed long before it got this bad, Nate climbs back onto the plane by climbing up this long chain of cargo that's falling out. Again, this was all spoiled if you looked at the physical copy of the game or if you looked at any of the marketing materials before the game's launch, so it's not really surprising that the plane breaks apart and crashes and Nate survives. But it doesn't change the fact that this is a really cool sequence where Nate drifts off to another piece of cargo, is able to pull the latch on the parachute in what can only be described as a vertigo-laden nightmare, and Nate lands safely on the ground. I will say, however, this was a cargo plane filled with cargo, and Nate doesn't take any cargo or even look around before leaving. Like, you'd think at the very least he'd check around, maybe get some extra food, maybe some water. Like, surely they have a, a first aid kit or something. Maybe one of the guys has sunscreen or even just a hoodie that he could wear to protect himself in the desert sun. Like, take five minutes, bro. Look around before you leave hiking through the desert. <laughs> like, come on. But no, they wanted to have these moments where you're wandering through the desert, hallucinating and seeing mirages and things. And that can't really happen if a character is really healthy and hydrated. So instead, they just have him not look through the plane at all, even though that's what literally anybody in their right mind would do. You wander through the desert, eventually coming up on a village after like a solid 10 minutes of just walking across dunes. It's really bizarre how long it takes, but you know what? Maybe they're just trying to make us sympathetic with Nate and just as bored as he is walking across all this sand. Who knows? By the time you get to the village, Nate is completely dehydrated, starved, and incredibly weak. However, you do find your way into an underground well and find a little puddle of water. You drink it up, which you think would rejuvenate you just a little bit, but Nate says it's undrinkable and stops drinking. But he's not gonna drink anything else in the village, uh, like at all. And here, he's totally fine after all of this. Like, 
totally fine. They did this in Uncharted 2 as well, where Nate gets severely injured, but is still able to do superhuman things the second he needs to. I get it. It's a video game. You have to kind of have these bizarre rules of life being broken. Like if a game was fully grounded to the point where like you need to use the bathroom, you need to eat three square meals a day. It probably wouldn't be that fun, but still. I mean, I'm just saying if you're going to have an entire section of the plot set up around the fact that Nate is incredibly dehydrated and starving, and then you're just never going to address it or solve that issue for the character, it just comes off as like you forgot to handle it, you know? <laughs> like, oh no, Nathan Drake is starving and he's, he's super dehydrated. He's on death's door and he's hallucinating. Okay, we have a combat sequence. Oh, were we going to have him drink something? Eh, no, nah, screw that. We're just going to get back into it. The player will probably forget too. And then they move on. Again, it's just a very early 2000s, like, eh, the player won't care that much. Just move on. It's that philosophy that I think has aged so poorly. We then have a ton of shooting arenas, eventually with you finding somebody that is willing to help you escape for some reason and you ride off on a horse out into the desert further again i know it might just be me this is just so the mummy to me like the american bad boy archaeologist treasure hunter dude is here in the middle of nowhere and then this really specifically dressed arab that is like protecting this sacred location comes out to help him, but also to fight him at the same time because he wants to protect that city. Like it's just so, it's so mummy. I don't know how else to put it. Now this guy basically explains what's going on at the city where you're headed to the Atlantis of the sands. And he tells you effectively that there is the power of a djinn there and it caused people to basically go insane and that is likely why Marlowe and those people are going there because they want to take the djinn for themselves and use its power to rule the world and um for me i i thought immediately like oh great here we go again more supernatural stuff but you're gonna see that they they even chicken out on that and they're not going to pursue that explanation of what's happening. So you ride with Salim chasing the convoy. This actually is the early PS3 version of what we would eventually see in the E3 trailer for Uncharted 4 in the Madagascar level. You're jumping from truck to truck shooting and uh, shifting platforms as you go. And the set piece, of course, is constantly changing because the cars are driving along a set road. It's pretty cool to see this thing running. And the fact that this was designed for the PS3 is honestly very impressive. But you fight your way up, eventually coming across Sully and saving him. The newfound team eventually finds their way to a sandstorm and they're told to push on through. This is sort of the gate that protects the city. Again, this is so mummy. I love it. You push through, open the door, and see right there. There it is, the, the Atlantis of the Sands. Uh, huh, that was easy. This place is called Ubar. It's very well realized. It's a beautiful city. Lots of ornate decorations. It, it's just really visually very fascinating. Uh, again, it's the classic issue of uh, Uncharted, where these big cities with open air above them have never been discovered, even though people have looked for them very actively. It's like, guys, Google Maps exists. <laughs> you know, like satellites, planes, helicopters. This is probably a little high because you have to go over the sandstorm to get to it. But still, like, this would be found. But again, that's just one of these other little things you have to sort of 
hand wave away. You just have to accept it in order to have fun with these types of stories. And I'm willing to do that. It's just always funny to me how big the cities are, totally exposed up top. And don't get me wrong, this is not something that just Amy Hennig did. It's something that Neil Druckmann and Bruce Straley will do in Uncharted 4 again. And of course, in The Lost Legacy, where these huge cities are totally exposed and could have been found very, very easily. You just kind of have to accept that they don't have access to Google Earth. Now, once you get into the city, Nathan and Sully walk forward and they find a fountain that's still flowing. And Nathan decides to drink from the fountain, but Sully doesn't. Now, of course, Nathan does exert a lot more physical energy, I suppose, than Sully. So it makes sense that he might be more dehydrated and more driven to drink out of the fountain. However, the fact that Sully doesn't drink it seems kind of arbitrary. He doesn't really have a good reason not to. And you would think after being in the hot desert sun and just fighting your way through a sandstorm, you would at least want to wet your whistle. But you'll understand very shortly why Sully can't drink out of this fountain at the same time that Nate does. Again, it doesn't matter what makes sense, it matters what the writers wanted to have happen. You see, almost immediately after drinking this, there is a solar eclipse, or is it a lunar eclipse? Let me look up the difference. Solar, solar eclipse. I just wanted to be sure. It's a thing of when the moon moves in front of the sun and it makes a really cool, like, blackout sky. It's super awesome visually, but this happens right after Nate drinks from the fountain, and then he turns, sees Talbot and Marlowe across the way, and then Sully is shot in the back and drops dead. I know what you're thinking. Oh my God, they killed Sully. They actually did it. Well, just you wait a second. Right after this happens, we have a series of shooting galleries where every time you would kill somebody, their heads light up on fire, their eyes start glowing with fire. It's a little bit of a giveaway that something's off, uh, but in the context of what you were just told by Salim, it makes sense because he said that the enemies that you'll encounter in the city are overpowered with the curse of the jinn, effectively. So you just kind of hand wave it away mentally, like, oh, it must be the jinn affecting these enemies that turns them into jack-o'-lanterns. And after one arena, and then the next one, and then the next one, you start to have flashbacks where you begin to run through the same city streets that you ran through earlier. And then you have a flashback and you start playing as a young Nathan Drake, reliving the same sequence that you played earlier in the game when you were escaping from Marlowe's men initially. It's a full-blown acid trip culminating in Nathan Drake throwing himself off a cliff and into a dried out pond or pool of some sort, it's immediately clear to anybody with any sense that Nathan tripped balls when he drank from the water. The water is contaminated in some way. And this is proven true when Nathan runs back into Sully and Sully is like, bro, you started like freaking out when you took that man, like you, you were on something. And they put it together that something is in the water that poisons people, causes them to lose their minds and go crazy and hallucinate like crazy. And that is the gin. I mean, to me, this is pretty believable. Gin does the same thing to me too. I don't know what they're talking about, why this is surprising. So the water and whatever chemical or compound is in it is what affected all of the citizens of the city, caused them to go crazy, and in turn, had the effect of the gin, basically. And this is what Marlowe and Talbot are going after because they will use that compound, I guess, to control people and cause them to go crazy, maybe turn it into a weapon, even though Marlowe is not like a Nadine character where she might be able to sell that particular compound to somebody for military purposes. 
she just wants it for some reason. Now, what's also kind of confusing is that this isn't like a naturally occurring element in the water. There's an actual jar that Marlowe and Talbot are lifting out because you find them lifting it out with a little crane immediately upon this realization because the writers were like, okay, let's wrap this story up. Let's, let's figure this out. Let's wrap it up. There's an actual jar like that a, a gin, that like a genie would be in. So something about the jar is leaking this compound and has been for hundreds or thousands of years at a steady enough pace that the water is still potent with it to the point where you trip balls after a sip of water. Okay. And again, it just doesn't make sense why Marlo and Talbot want this. There's no explanation given as to why they want this or why their particular characters would want this. Marlo's part of a secret organization that's been looking for the ring and in turn, I guess, this location for 400 years. So they want this gin and its power and they've wanted it for 400 years, but there's never a clear explanation as to why. Like, are they just big, bad, evil villains that want to control the world? Do they just want to sell this as some sort of military weapon that can control minds and cause cities to kill themselves and destroy it? I mean, it's just never explained. And what also doesn't make a lot of sense is that Talbot already has a hallucinogenic drug that he's used twice now that we've seen in order to control people's minds and get them to do whatever he wants them to do, which seems like a more useful compound than one that just makes you freak out and start killing people. But regardless, you just have to accept that Marlowe and Talbot want this compound and want this gin for some reason. Again, I have a reason as to why I think they were doing all of this that I think can explain why there's an actual jar and why there's this and that. We'll get there. Upon finding them lifting this jar out of this pond where it's been stored, Nate and Sully split up in order to, I guess, get the jump on them as they lift this. They're going to, I guess, murder them and escape that way. Not clear what the plan is, but Sully, spotting that Talbot has spotted Nate, jumps in just in time to lift his hand so that he doesn't shoot Nate, killing him. But in turn, as a result, gets the crap whacked out of him with the butt of a pistol. He drops to all fours. And then Talbot, instead of just like shooting him right there, which he could do if he actually wanted to kill him, which we know was his goal because he just shot at one of them. Instead of doing that, just a quick and easy trigger pull, he just kind of pushes him into the water. I like, okay. <laughs> Again, it would have been really easy to kill Sully here. Like, oh, Sully died saving Nate. That's pretty awesome. But no, no. He falls in the water, is unconscious for some reason. Nate dives in, is able to grab Sully, turns, sees the jar being lifted, and then using some sort of superpower where he doesn't have to deal with the refraction of the water affecting what you see on the surface outside of the water, he's able to shoot the pillar, something this big, of the crane, blowing it up, dropping the jar back into the depths of the water, causing Marlowe and everybody to freak out. And this also apparently did enough structural damage to the entire city that the entire city begins to collapse. You get Sully back to the surface. He comes to and is totally fine because of course he is. And everybody starts to try and escape the city while shooting through multiple waves of enemies and 
platforming your way up and out. Eventually you reach a small chamber where the floor falls out from under you and Nate and Marlowe are caught in quicksand. Marlowe, however, is caught pretty deep within it. Talbot can't save her he's too far away. So it's pretty much up to Nate. Marlowe challenges him saying, prove your greatness as she holds the necklace with the ring on it. <laughs> and all the while Talbot is screaming at Nate saying, you can't just let her die, even though he just tried to murder Nate and Sully like 10 seconds ago, <laughs> but whatever. It's like, yeah, that what I did was okay. Cause you guys suck, but it, it, like, Come on, man, don't be a jerk. Regardless, Nate, because he's a good guy, tries to save Marlowe using his uh, whatever, like, shoulder holster thing, that holster vest, I guess, is what it would be called. It's too late, though. She sinks into the sand, and there's no saving her. So you see her hand go into the, the sand as the last thing, and then the ring goes down just after. So... Marlo's dead. Nate and Sully then try to escape the city with a bunch of moving platforms as the entire place comes tumbling down. And this is actually pretty cool. All of these walkways have fractured and have broken apart as the sand is flowing and they're shifting and slowly going over the ledge as you have to jump from piece to piece. It's pretty cool, even considering it looks pretty unrealistic. <laughs> like the sand underneath these platforms is moving really quickly and the platforms are barely moving at all. But still, I, I really like this sequence and I think it's a cool way to wrap up what goes on at this city. However, because we still have loose ends to wrap up, Talbot teleports his way to the top of the city, which makes sense because he can teleport as we found out earlier, and you engage in yet another fist fight with him. That's right, the worst part of the combat system. That's how we're going to wrap up the entire game. Buckle up. Except Talbot has a knife, so he has an advantage over you. In fact, this actually probably helps because it breaks up the monotony of the fist fighting and the repetitiveness of it, meaning that he will regularly get you in chokeholds or in positions where he's going to stab you and you have to perform these quick time events to break it up. It seems as though that would actually be worse than just fist fighting, but it actually breaks up how awful the fist fighting is in a way that makes it better. So I'm actually okay with it. Eventually Talbot gets Nate on the ground about to stab him in the neck, but Sully comes in at the last second to save Nate with a carefully placed gunshot to Talbot. However, as we know, Talbot, he's totally fine with bullet wounds. So uh, there's no real effect on him. He just kind of like, ow. <laughs> <laughs> and then keeps going. However, Nate is knocked from the platform while he's trying to catch the gun after a big seismic shift, leaving Talbot and Sully at the top of the platform. You climb your way back up, Talbot's about to kill Sully, and then you shoot him two or three times, whatever it takes. And uh, then this cutscene plays where Talbot all of a sudden is feeling the bullet wounds, so he is mortal, and then he falls and uh, is gone. Nate, Sully, and Salim then escape the city, watching it slowly sink into the sands and that's it we then jump forward to the airport everybody's headed home nate and elena and sully are in a great mood nate and elena share some interesting and cute dialogue setting up the next game and uh their their life together i suppose it's super cute and then sully shows off his new plane which of course he hasn't had for years at this point and this is also cool because it's going to be used in the next game as well so it all kind of ties together and then the camera fades to black and that is the end of uncharted 3. now okay now that we're through everything before we wrap up all of this cleanly i want to express my opinion on talbot 
and what I think happened with this game's story beyond just like having huge sections of it that weren't necessary at all. So Talbot doesn't make any sense at all. And this is not just me. If you look up any sort of description of this game contemporary to its launch, everybody says that the main villain's henchman seems to have abilities that are never explained and doesn't make a lot of sense. So it's not just me all these years later being nitpicky. Listen, it's very simple. He does things that are impossible and that are never explained. Teleporting, he can do it. Surviving gunshots, he can do it. Seemingly able to enact mind control tactics on people, he can do that as well. Now, what I thought they were setting up all of this for was to reveal Talbot as, in effect, either a vessel or a weakened form of the djinn. But no, or maybe. If it is the case, then it's never explained or explored. It's just there's no dialogue. It's like it's missing or they forgot to put it in. I really think that they probably meant for this to be the big reveal at the end of the game, that the djinn had possessed this random dude Talbot, giving him slight powers. And in order to release the djinn's full essence, he was going to need to partner with Marlowe and her endless resources in order to fully release the djinn in that jar that they were raising. And then he would effectively gain all of these powers, becoming the full powered djinn, and they would be able to use him to acquire whatever fame, fortune, power that they would need. This would explain how he's able to teleport. This would explain how he's able to survive gunshot wounds and why he can't survive gunshot wounds after the jar falls and presumably is completely covered or broken in some way when everything else collapses on top of it. It could explain everything that happens with regards to Talbot, but this is never brought up. It's never discussed. It might've been the intention, and I think it probably was the intention of the writers, but they never did anything with it. So either they just forgot to put in dialogue that explained that he was actually partially Jinn or had the Jinn's blessing or power or essence or something, or it was cut because they wanted a more grounded story and they didn't want to rely on this supernatural stuff. So they said, oh, the water hallucinations, it's not actually magical or supernatural. It's actually just chemicals in the water that do it. Okay, yeah. And then there's something in the jar. The chemicals are in the jar and that's what's doing it. So they thought it was a gin way back when, but it's actually just a chemical agent. Woo woo. But if that's what they were actually doing, then they did a pretty piss poor job of it because they didn't cut out every supernatural thing that he does. Like, not even close. If that was the case, Talbot should just be a henchman who does the dirty work from Marlowe. But instead, they have him still doing things that only a djinn could do. Like, remember the weird raisin dude that looks like he just opened the Ark of the Covenant in the Chateau in France? Well, it's suggested that he had his life sucked out of him somehow, but it's never mentioned again. Granted, it could have been those spiders that we discussed, but this all happened far away from them and you don't see spiders doing anything similar. So I don't think it was the spiders that did it. This guy might've just pissed off Talbot. He sucked the life out of him because he's a djinn and that's it. But like either way, either the spiders did it or Talbot did it with his superpowered djinn sucking ability, but neither option ever receive any evidence pointing one way or the other. It's just not there. Or once again, the example of Talbot getting shot in the chest. He's totally fine. And granted, this isn't the first time that a shot to the chest should have killed an Uncharted character, such as in Uncharted 1. Okay, so maybe this is just a thing that Naughty Dog is doing. Every game, somebody gets shot in the torso and ends up being totally fine. That could be the case. I mean, there's Sully in Uncharted 1, Nate in Uncharted 2, Talbot in Uncharted 3, Sully in Uncharted 3, Sam in Uncharted 4. You know what? The more 
the more I think about it, maybe this is just a naughty dog thing. <laughs> or probably the worst offense, which is when Talbot teleports out of nowhere into a brick wall, walks out, is fine, controls Cutter's mind a little bit, gets what he wants, and then teleports out again. Like, it's so stupid. It really seems as though he was written with supernatural powers, they were going to reveal him as the djinn, and then they decided that some point in the development that they weren't going to do that. They weren't going to rely on supernatural stuff. So they cut the supernatural bit and instead put in this grounded ish story of it being a chemical agent that's controlling people's minds. But it was going to be too much work to go back through and redo all of those conversations and moments, getting rid of all of the supernatural elements. So instead they just left them in and never explained them. Because, I mean, think of it, if they needed to rewrite it so that Talbot didn't have superpowers and wasn't a djinn, they would have to go back and redo a significant chunk of all of the motion capture that takes place within Yemen. They'd have to go back and redo sections of the levels in France at the Chateau. They'd have to do a lot of stuff. And it's likely that they just said, eh, who's going to care? Who's going to notice? We'll just leave it up to the imagination and people will fill in the gaps themselves. And... I guess they were right, because here I am all these years later doing it. But anyway, that's Uncharted 3. Some people say it's their favorite in the franchise. I strongly disagree, especially having just played it on stream with all of you guys over on Twitch. It's still really glitchy, even in the remastered collection. I just don't think it's particularly great. It, it just... It's fine. It's fine. But a lot of the narrative stuff I really have trouble forgiving. It's just not... Great. But let me know all of your thoughts on this game, as well as the franchise in general. I want to hear it in the comment section below. I also will be tackling Uncharted 4 in the coming weeks and months, and then also The Lost Legacy, which was, of course, the DLC spin-off game that came after it. So if you want to be notified of when those videos go live, make sure to subscribe and like this video so I know to make it a priority. And also, if you want to see those videos a full week before everybody else, head over to Patreon, throw a buck in the coffer. I'd greatly appreciate it. But with all of that said, thank you for watching, honestly and truly. I love you all more than you possibly know. The fact you made it all the way through this video is amazing. So thank you, truly. I'll see you in the next video. Bye-bye.